History Lecture 63, Rabbi Blyweiss. Uh, Bar Kochva has just been crushed, literally. And as we talked about, the, the um, quite extreme descriptions in the Yushalmi, in the Medrash, in Echarab, and elsewhere, the, um, the blood was flowing out to the sea. And uh, even Hadrian, even the pagan Caesar of, of Rome, saw God's hand uh, in the darkest of times, and we concluded talking about the uh, bodies that were hung out and gloriously displayed uh, by the Romans in their cruelty, um, but with Hashem's chesed, they did not decompose. And Hadrian goes out, and he's not done. So Markofa falls, and uh, the, the capital, the central town of Betar has fallen, but he's not finished. He goes all around Yehuda, Judea, and he destroys town upon town upon town. He rounds up every Jew he can find in the area. He kills so many Jews that in another description, um, he rounds them up in a place called Bikat Rimon, and the blood flows out to a place called Nachal Kipros, uh, which I think, to the best of my understanding, Kipros is in the area of Jericho. There's a fortress there that Herod named for his mother, Kipros, that I've mentioned before. Many now are forced to hide underground. Uh, many will start to starve to death if they aren't already. They are reduced to eating from the corpses of, uh, of, of, of their... Yes, similar to the description of, of the Korban, yes. Mothers ate their children, which is both the first and the second temple one found that. And in this case, we have a story of a, uh, a man who consumes the flesh from the corpse of one of another Jew uh, without realizing that he's actually eating his father. And um, by doing so, he fulfills yet another posuk in the klala, in the curse, that's anticipated in the Torah when we don't walk in the ways of Kaddish Baruch Hu. This is what happens, yes. Is that... I always thought that, that that was the prophecy for the first uh, temple. No, it was for any time calamity occurs in the in the uh, of the dimension of the Horban and the Horban of the first and the second temple were with the mother who have that dimension exactly the klala and we find it now by Brachochva. Yes, life and death. Yes, but one they did have a choice in terms of so they Fine, but you, fair enough, fair enough. But the um, and but if you had to, you would have avoided eating from your father's corpse. And the fact that the man would have wanted to, the the horror of discovering what he had just done, as if there's a way of topping the calamity. But that certainly was a calamity. Often, as they are going, as they are hiding underground, the Romans and their cruelty, and we've seen such behavior before, will throw torches in the cavities and deep, in the, deep beneath the ground, which force people either to stay inside and suffocate or to come outside and be captured and murdered. There's the sandal story, the spike sandals? Yeah, there are a lot of stories, yeah. yeah it's, for the, Gemara, uh, the Gemara talks about the spike sandals, they would be, would, would it remind me, what is it? No, they have a revolt, they have a reverse soul. Yes. So it looks like people are walking outside of the caves when yes. they walk inside the caves. And they had a rule that you could enter the caves, but you could never leave the caves. Because, because you can see if a, uh, if a Roman is looking at you yeah. when you enter. Yes. But when you leave, there could be a Roman, then you could let out the whole cave and everybody could die. Everybody would die So there. 
when somebody walked in with spiked sandals, it looked like somebody walked out, and it caused a big commotion, and everybody died in the cave. Uh huh. Yeah. It's why you can't wear spiked sandals and drugs. Right. The, right. I mean, Xera as a result of such such and such an no, event. Spiked sandals. What the heck are spiked sandals? Spiked sandals are the story about the man who wound up beating from the cadaver, but it turned out to be his father. No, which one? You're saying about the Greek. The Greeks also had a similar episode on the way. If you remember the the, the um, when the Greeks were on their way to Modi'in before Matisyao and his sons uh, struck, they had a similar story in a cave. Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah, where they were smoked out of the cave uh, for keeping Shabbos. The um, in one another another story, there are many many stories. So I, I'm only summarizing some of them. But thanks for adding to our list, Barak. Um, the uh, Hadrian um, is is in Rome, and a Jew sees him and doesn't know what to do. He's afraid of the empire emperor, so he greets Hadrian, and Hadrian was is is uh, appalled that some lowly Jew would would greet him, and so he has the Jew killed. And um, when he passes another Jew, this time the Jew thinks, okay, I'm not going to greet him. And Hadrian's, insult, Hadrian's insulted that the Jew doesn't greet him, so he has him killed. There's no winning. The uh, surviving Jews flee. And they move north in Eretz Yisrael to the Galilee, which will become the new center of Eretz Yisrael uh, for many centuries to come. And uh, certainly in the later period of the Tanaim, the Galilee, the Galil, the north of Eretz Yisrael, becomes the center. And um, it also became red. And say it again? It also became red. Became a rifle? I'm sure there's a pun there somewhere, and I'm not getting it. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. It's the name of the gun, but it's Oh, fine. The, um, it, they also increasingly moved to Golos. More Jews pour out, they go to Bavel, they go to Egypt. Um, life in Judea and, and Eretz Israel becomes fraught. Um, there is a period where we have no record of Jews remaining behind in Yehuda, certainly not in Jerusalem, but also not even in the surrounding areas in the heart of the Holy, uh, the Holy Land. Um, the area has become what the Germans will later call, the Nazis will later call Judenrein, free of Jews, as the Romans solidify their holdings and make Elia Capitolina, what we thought of as what we think of as Yushalayim, now a small military outpost, not significant, um, and it won't be now for another century or two. Now the early Christians had long before this episode given up on trying to convert Jews. They saw that the Jewish people were stubborn, were resistant. We recognize we recognize the insincerity, the folly of early of Christianity, and so they turned to their efforts would focus on converting the pagan world and. But the early Christians also, on some level, identified still with Judaism. Most of them, indeed, were Jews once. Um, there's evidence that they kept some mitzvos, even though, if you remember, Paul had done away with the institutionalized observance of mitzvahs, but as a general practice, they still, there was still we have evidence that they were giving bris milah to their children, to their, to their sons, uh, that they had mezuzahs on their doorposts, and other, other mitzvahs that you could understand that the Jewish people, you can take the, uh, 
you can take the core of the Torah away from the Jews and replace it with Christianity, but mitzvah observance goes fairly deep, and the Jews, the Jews uh, clung, uh, excuse me, the early Christians, um, we know, still kept some of these mitzvahs. Yeah? Right, right. You're referring to when we talked about like Rebbe Meir saying Kriyachma and this and the guard at the door was there and didn't capture him. It's true, but sometimes um, when you want to do Kiddush Hashem, when you want to, you, you, you don't want to have to hide the fact that you're serving Hashem. Right, Remember, you do, especially when there's a life-death situation, right, you get right. the best of both. You don't have to get so the worst of both. We have these great stories of the fearless Daniel who risked and actually was thrown into the lion's den for davening. Yeah, and you're right. Yeah, it's a that's because he was publicly um, asked to oh, oh, If you're privately in your house, in, no, you no, it was in his house. And it was after the decree, after after they conspired against him and made this decree. And it was during the court case too. And he did it anyway because by doing it, he's making a statement to the Jewish people, this is what a Jew does. And, and um, we're going to see shortly now, we have many such ex uh, examples of people who deliberately die al-Kiddush Hashem. That's what you do. The uh, Gemara says, Yaharet Valyavo, we talked about last week, a person has to die and not transgress the three major sins of Odazar, Yilir, but not just there. We also are supposed to die in times of a Shas Hashmad, and we're now officially in Shas Hashmad. This is the, this is a, devastation time where everything is symbolic, everything is forcing, trying, the, the Roman Empire is, is, is now um, on a war path and they're going to separate the Jews from Avinu Shemayim from their, their father in heaven and they understand that mitzvahs and mitzvah observance is, is, is of ultimate importance to the Jews so symbolically uh, the Gemara says if, a, if we're told to tire shoes in a way that would somehow indicate that we're betraying Hashem, we would also have to die and not tie our shoes that way. Meaning anything that's symbolically going against the Kaddish Baruch Hu, we can't forfeit, we can't, we can't compromise on that. So conversely, when they tell us not to daven, sometimes it's more, it's, it's an imperative to not just daven under our breath, but to daven Gishmah, and to pour our heart and soul into the, into the, whole, um, into the whole venture. Now the Christians, um, at this point, are moving away from the Jews, and after Bar Kochva, they now declare themselves for the first time a new religion altogether. They want no even association with Jews. No, no, that's not us. Um, whatever mitzvahs they had been keeping, Mila, mezuzahs, uh, basic kashrus, they now abandon. Eusebius, who is a bishop right, living in Caesarea um, sometime after this period, not, not, not many years later, he writes that the whole Christian community of Jerusalem consisted of Hebrews by birth at that point. But at, uh, Hebrew by birth, he's, he's talking about the Christian community, right? But afterwards, the bishops of what he calls the circumcised ceased, meaning they weren't, the, the bishops were no longer receiving brismila. Um, Rev. Victor Miller points out that the, the first korban, the first destruction of the temple, wiped out the last vestiges of Avodah Zarah. 
right? We saw the, the end of Avodah with the destruction of the first temple. With the destruction of the second temple, we see the eradication of most sects. You remember the Gemara and Gitin that we've quoted many times, that the, in order to um, get the snake uncoiled from the, the, the jug, we have to break the jug of honey, we have to break the base of Mikdash to get rid of the Tztukim, the Baitusim, the Essenes, and the rest. And now these groups, the, Kut, the Christians, and I'm going to talk now about the Kutim, the Samaritans, at this point in history we find them, and the Christians explicitly, disassociating from Klal Yisrael. They're leaving us behind entirely. Uh, they are leaving Am Yisrael as pure and unadulterated as when the Jews left Egypt, as the, as the Pasuk describes, they left the Kur HaBarzel, as it were, they're scoured. And uh, they've singed out any impurities. And the Jews now are emerging in this time of tragedy in, a, in an interestingly um, refreshed, newly, newly uh, cleansed kind of a state with all of the tragedy. Yes? There was a Midrash in uh, Estorella. And it, it, was, uh, it was David, and he was begging uh, Hashem to allow him to bear the temple. Yes. And Hashem said, I can't let you build it. Yes. Because if you built it, there would be no way I could destroy something as perfect. Uh huh. And so he explained, like, the Midrash explains that the temple was there in case the Jews reached a level of, uh, of destruction. It can destroy the temple and give them a new beginning. Ah. But with, with David, uh, because he, because of how pure it would be, yes, he couldn't destroy it. So then he would have to destroy the Jews. Instead. So he he he, desi- so he that was he gave it to Shlomo. Yeah. Shlomo was designated then to, to really build the base and make that. Do you remember the source? Where yeah, is that? Midrash Rabbah. Uh, it's Midrash Rabbah. Uh, Esther. Esther. Esther Rabbah. Thank you. First, uh, second paragraph. The Gemara and Chulim now talk t- tell us about the Kutim. We know the Kutim, remember we've been talking about them tracing through history. Originally they were Gere Arayos, they would be converted out of fear of the lions. They would, they would be a perpetual um, uh, stumbling block to the Jewish people, constantly antagonizing us, getting our enemies to conspire against us. The most recent story we told of the Kuti that snuck into Betar and had, it, as it were, his conversation with Rabbi Alazar Hamodai and heralds the beginning of the end successfully. Um, we know that they did eventually convert to Judaism, but we also know, beginning with Ezra, way back in the second period, um, they started, the Jews started making takanos, limiting our connection with the Kutim. So initially, their bread was described as prohibited, as, as, prohibited as, as, as chazir, as swine, as pork chops. Um, later, it would be prohibited to marry, intermarry with them. They're, they're a distinct people. The Jews cannot connect with them. Um, soon enough, in the, in the, in the, a little bit later than this, in the generation, Rabbi Meir now is emerging as one of the Gedolim. Rabbi Meir will find them serving a Yonah, a pigeon, on, in their center, on Hargrizim, on the Mount of Hargrizim, um, and he deems them to be Mumarim Lavodazara. They are rebels, uh, idolatrous, um, and um, the big Nafkamina now, uh, you can't have anything to do with them. Their wine is Yain Nesech. If they touch wine, you can't drink it. And um, we've now seen them taken down even further from, uh, from, from, from previous stages. And we'll see within a couple generations what's going to happen to the Kutim from a halachic perspective is, is radical and unprecedented. 
there actually, there's never been anything like this in history. But, um, but we have now nothing, nothing to do with them. They've officially moved away, just like the Christians are no longer identified as the Jews. The Jews are now, I um, wish everybody were here. Akiva, Akiva, stick with this one. Um, this is an important point, an important phase in history. The Jews are now aware that this is effectively going to be the, the beginning of the longest and the harshest of all exiles. We know of the, we still very much in the forefront of our minds are the dreams the, the, of, of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, the Dalit Malchios, the four kingships. This is the last and most bitter uh, under, under Edom, Edom and Yishmael. And with this in mind, with this in mind now, the 70 years have now come and gone and the temple was not rebuilt and there's no immediate uh, even even long there's no there's no sign that the the temple is going to be rebuilt and we of course with perfect hindsight realize fasten your seatbelts it's going to be a long ride through history and based on pasuk in Shira Shirim three oaths are made who's familiar with when they talk about the three oaths what that means it's described in the last chapter of Ksubos it's one of those. If I give a comprehensive history test at the end of the at the end of the class, this would be one of those uh, elements in the history class that you do not know Jewish history if you don't know about the three oaths. Not complicated. Here they are, and you're going to see how incredibly relevant it is to understand the modern era. Uh, you don't understand anything unless you know the three oaths. The pasuk in Shir Shirim tells uh, tells us Kadosh Baruch who says, "Hishbasi eschem v'nos Yerushalayim." I've made you take an oath, daughters of Jerusalem. If you should wake up, if you should be um, uh, re, re, uh, reawakened, um, the love that would that exists until until you uh, until you, you you so you so desire, and based on these uh, psukim, Chazal understand and they, they they understand that there are three oaths that Hashem administers to to the human race. Two of them are directed at Jews, one towards non-Jews. The first, the Jews are told, and they take an oath, swearing that they will uphold this, that they are no longer able to be what's called Ola Bechoma. I'm using the Hebrew expressions because this comes up a lot. I'm even a little surprised that it's unfamiliar to you. It's the kind of thing that people hear about and... It, comes up, it's very relevant, you'll hear in a moment, uh, to the modern, uh, modern discussion of Eretz Israel and the state of Israel. Um, they're not allowed to be Ola Bechoma, which literally means coming up, breaking through the walls of the city, and taking back Yerushalayim and, in general, Eretz Israel by force. Uh, we can't come up in a united front, biyad chazaka, as it were, with a strong arm. Um, we can't, that's, that's number one. Um, number two, Jews take an oath, we're not allowed to rebel against the Malchios, against the sovereign powers. Whatever powers are in the land, we have to accept their dominion. And number three, this one is for the non-Jews, and it's striking, and some people chuckle when they hear it, but it's not funny. Uh, the non-Jews, for their part, are not allowed to be mishtabed the Jews, to subjugate the Jews too much. So I guess a little is okay, but that's the that's where the chuckle comes in. The the they, they it's understood almost. It's a, it's a given. Subjugate, uh, uh, oppress. 
well, no, no. Well, I, I guess you could say it's up for debate. What is too much? But um, I'm going to try to make the argument in the, in the coming months that they more than violated. I would say that's too much. And you don't have to get to the Holocaust. You don't have to get to the Shoah. To, 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 uh, we're going to see horrors upon horrors visited upon our people, our ancestors, our family uh, over, over the generations since then. And they did. It's derived in the Gemara from the Pasuk that that all all of humanity um, subscribed to these to these oaths. The um, according just a, a, a conflicting medrash. Really, it doesn't contradict. But it, 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 in Shir Shir Shirim Rabbah, we learn that Hashem makes the Jews take four oaths, and there it's counted. The first oath is not rebelling against the sovereign nations. That's similar to a, to one of the oaths. Um, we're not allowed to hasten the end, like Bar Kochva just tried to do, Litchofes Akates. Um, we're not allowed to reveal the Torah mysteries to the nations. Uh-oh. Go tell our scroll. Uh, or go tell the internet, right? And the, the, the uh, information, information superhighway, we're not supposed to reveal these. Um, and um, we're not allowed to be older Bahoma. So there are a couple different variations on these, but the bottom line remains the same. Go ahead, Aaron. Good for you. Good for you. So what are we doing here? Here being, of course, your slime. And what is the state doing here? We will, Bezrash Hashem, um, when we get to the modern day, revisit the three oaths and talk about it, as the post team obviously do. They can't, they can't not talk about it. Um, I'll cite then for you the probably the most uh, cited, referred to. I mean, by the way, Satmer, I'm simplifying things. It's a little more complex than this. But Satmer and the Satmer Rebbe with the old Teitelbaum held that the three oaths are still binding. Therefore, the Jews in Eretz Israel, particularly the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the state of Israel and the army of Israel, is violating this, and it's one of the it's it's the it's the basic um, element in their resistance to the modern state of Israel. You're familiar with the Satmar. The Satmar is not supportive of the state of Israel, to put it, to put it mildly. That's that's not news for anybody here, is it? Satmar, the Trikarta you've heard of. Trikarta, I, I shouldn't say them in the same breath. They are very different, but uh, but they, they this is a common thread that runs. They say it's the three oaths. You can't violate the three oaths. Can't fight for Israel is their argument, and it's well founded. Um, what then would be the basis of anybody who, let's say, we're not supporting the state of Israel necessarily, but anybody who disagrees, <coughs> who thinks the Jews, it, it's viable to be here right now? There is a view that is uh, brought down in a sefer you might have heard of. Um, actually, he, he talks about it in the Meshach Chochma, but the author wrote another book. Anybody know another book about that Rav Meir Simchadvinsk wrote other than the Meshach Chochma? You know the name of his, his the Or Sameach. I thought you might know that. Uh, so, so the, the Or Sameach has, um, has the famous comment, he said, because in 1917, Lord Balfour, in the famous Balfour Declaration, said that the Jews, and this is after the British Empire had become the sovereign power in Eretz Israel, he said that the Jews um, are entitled to some kind of a home in their ancient homeland. Since the sovereign power in Israel, in Palestine at the time, was acknowledging the legitimacy of a Jewish homeland in the homeland, 
de facto, by definition, Jews coming back then would not be uh, rebelling against the sovereign power, nor would it be taking Eretz Israel biyat hazaka with a strong arm. And, and the UN gave it to us. Well, okay, that more that is more debatable. But but let's. He vote, said though. his comment. He wasn't alive by the time right. the partition plan in 1947. But in 1917, he was alive, and he indicated that that would be uh, if, that if Jews would come and take the state, then that would not be a violation of the three oaths. Um, other views exist as well. The Steiflegaon said, um, let's say for argument's sake that the Jews in fighting the wars and declaring independence, let's say they had violated the three oaths. That would be their transgression, but the Steifler said a Jew then after the fact living in Eretz Israel under Jewish sovereignty even would not be violating the three oaths. Meaning it would be the transgression of the first generation, but it wouldn't mean that we couldn't live here. Or to put it in the positive example, the double it would be we, Jews would be perfectly entitled to live here after the three O's would be violated. We'll, we'll, all of this we'll see will unfold and will uh, will be very important. Keep in mind though the three O's are binding and will have to be somehow considered in any discussion of what goes on in the Holy Land. The revolts that we've just uh, endured without not really survived very effect effectively, but the Bar Kokhba revolt is seen as the last major stand that the Jewish people as a nation make, last major attempt to reclaim Palestine and Jerusalem as their own, uh, Eretz Israel and Jerusalem as their own, all the way into the modern era until the uh, Zionism and the, and the attempts by Jews in the, in the uh, last century or so to retake their holy land. As we said, almost no Jew remains behind in Yehuda. We know that the existence of some Jews in places like Lod, which we've heard about a lot, Lod, Lod is, was, was, a, was a Jewish city. There are some Jews in Lod. We know that there was a community south of Hebron in, um, uh, today it's called Susia, which is an Arabic word, but it's an interesting place, a national park where you can visit. And you can visit, uh, among other things, re restoration of a beautiful um, synagogue. Anybody been to Susia? Oh, really? Great place. You should go. Very, very worthwhile visiting. They, what's that? We, I have often taken Shiva on the day when we uh, would theoretically go to Hebron. I just tried to get us to go to I had you in mind when we were negotiating where, where we go for Thursday. And they said, absolutely not to Hebron right now. It may not happen this year because they're being very conservative. Unless you guys give feedback. Another yeshiva, my friend's yeshiva, so much harder one than Hebron for Shabbat. Tell the authorities that be. I'd go in an instant, not hesitate. You, you know, give the feedback. They have a ton of guards there. I'm going, I'm going to talk to them. Great. They have a ton of guards. I'm behind you. In any case, Susia, we know, that it was, a Jew, was a Jewish community. We have evidence of Jewish life there all the way into the major earthquake that ravaged Israel in 749 of the Common Era. Uh, we know that there was a Jewish community down in Ein Gedi. Maybe some people have seen not just the hiking area, but right in the center of the oasis that is Ein Gedi, there are ruins of an ancient Jewish community, a mikveh, an ancient synagogue with mosaic inscriptions and such. And um, so we know that there are Jews in and around, but it's not a life. The Jews in Yehuda, in Judea, are, are, are more or less living um, in immense persecution in, uh, in, in um, it, uh, under under the radar, and the center of gravity, as we said, has moved as as has moved north to to the Galilee. As we said, Elia Capitolina is now this pagan city, 
and it's going to take a couple centuries, but um, in, in the fourth century, it will become an exclusively Christian center. Uh, again, as we said, Jews need not apply. We mentioned, I, I, we talked a, a few minutes ago, um, those of you who came in late missed a pretty important central question that's going to be the end of the, end of the uh, um, year. Uh, final exams will be a, a major question on the three oaths. So you have to know about the three oaths. Uh, and No, I just made that up. But it got your attention, didn't it? <laughs> Works. I think so. In any case, but you know about the three oaths. Get the, get the crib notes. The, uh, yeah, the, um, so we said again, this is a time of Shas and that Yaharik Val Yavor applies even in Shas not just to the three major sins, but if anything symbolic, if, they, if a non-Jew would come over and say, uh, tie your shoelace in a funny way, bend over in a funny way, a Jew might potentially have to die and not transgress. Um, they decree now a number of harsh, harsh measures against the Jews. They decree that any Jew caught with tefillin would have his brains smashed, his brains smashed. And the Gemara tells the story of one courageous Jew by the name of Elisha Balknafayim. Do you know about him, Barak? Elisha Balknafayim. Uh, the, the, uh, Balknafayim, the, the, the one who is literally the owner of wings, he goes to market oh, wearing his tefillin. And um, a Kazdor, a Roman officer, catches him and is about to try him for murder. And Elisha, thinking quickly, puts his tefillin in his hands. Um, this may be proof that tefillin used to be tiny because uh, they could fit in the palms of his hands. I know um, <coughs> my father gave me my grandfather's tefillin, as was the style back not that many generations ago in Europe because they didn't have any money. Um, so they had these kosher but tiny, tiny little tefillin. Uh, nothing like our, our, our big, proud, uh, right, American, American tefillin. What's that? With they, they, my, a few generations back, they were from, right, right. It, it, they, they, uh, right, it wore out by, by my grandfather's generation, but he has it, as a child, he had his tefillin still. So it's like the American, like your family is like the American. Exact classic American pattern. Exactly. They say, although, although Yugoslavia is famously one of the was famously before the war one of the most assimilated of all the European communities. So my mother was born in Zagreb, and her family was uh, was very much a byproduct of Zagreb of, of Yugoslavia. Very, very cultured. Uh, very much people of the arts and of the of the sciences. Very, very learned, but not not Jewish in any identifiable way. Um, no, that's not fair, but not, not, certainly not religious, religiously Jewish in any, any definable way. Um, the, uh, Elisha puts his tefillin in his hands, and when the Kazar says, I know what you've got there, open your hands and show me, he opens his hands and reveals the wings of a dove, which of course that's why he gets his nickname, Balknafayim, and of course the Mepharshim explain that's the pigeon, the Yonah, Yonah Matzav Voma Noach, is a symbol of Klal Yisrael. Uh, as, as Yonah sends the, excuse me, uh, Noah sends the dove from the Teva and it comes back with the um, olive branch. So the Jewish people are sent adrift in history and eventually we'll come back bearing our own olive branch. The Romans decree against <coughs> Kriya Satyra, reading the Torah. And so Chazal make a special decree. If you can't read the Torah on Shabbos, 
this is when we find the first earliest instance of what's called the Haftarah, in which they select a, re a thematically relevant segment from our Nevim, our holy prophets, and we're a tenacious bunch. We'll find a loophole, we'll find a way around their decree, and that's when they started reading excerpts from the Haftarah on, uh, on Shabbos in lieu of the classic Torah reading. Of course, when the decree against Torah would, would eventually expire, the Minag had already been established to read a Haftarah, which is why we persist today. Um, but this is what this is a byproduct when we see other other aspects of our davening of our of our practice that reflect these uh, harsh measures. <coughs> they decree against saying Kriya Shema. We're not allowed to say the Shema. So Chazal, in their clever in their clever uh, secret ways, they inserted what's called Bahavla, right? Kind of like uh, by the way, where nobody's looking and noticing it. In the, in the context of what's of Kedusha, where it's not noticed. <coughs> we're standing Kadosh, 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 and we say on Shabbos morning, Bekarazel, Zeb, Amar, Shema Yisrael, that used to be the Mitzvah saying Shema, but it was hidden cleverly in Kedusha as a way of making the Roman sentries not notice that the Jews were fulfilling their Mitzvah. Uh, when they eventually decree against saying Kedusha, uh-oh, what are we gonna do now? So what did the rabbis do? They said it in what's called Seder Kedusha Uvalet Sion. And if you notice, we say, we, we, uh, we say Kedusha now Uvalet Sion, again, inserted Kadosh, 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 like you do. Have you ever noticed this yeah. in the context of davening? All of these decrees, all of these special tefillahs are a byproduct of this Shasashmat, this time of terrible persecution. They decree against blasting the shofar, Tkiyah shofar, and they actually sent spies during Shachris of Rosh Hashanah to make, make sure the Jews would not be blowing the, blowing the shofar on, on, uh, on Shachris. And when they were satisfied and they left, making sure that the Jews had not, in fact, blown their shofar, Chazal started making a decree that we would blast the shofar <laughs> during Mosaf. We'll do it later after they're gone. And that decree has survived till today. If it ever struck you as odd, ordinarily when it comes to special mitzvahs, we no, there's a principle in Chazal, Zrizim, Magdimim, Lemitzvahs, you want to do the mitzvah as soon as you possibly can. So it occurred to you, isn't that odd that the Jews wait until, until uh, all the way till Musaf before we start blasting the, 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 uh, the shofar? Um, this is the reason. Well, what do they hear anyways? It's pretty loud. Apparently, by the time Shachris had come and gone, they'd given up. Exactly. So when the coast was clear, the Jews took advantage. The... Um, Finally, and it's been a long time in coming, but the Romans are, uh, are, are persistent, they make a decree against learning Torah. Jews are not allowed to learn Torah. And, of course, one Jew cannot, would not, is, not, is constitutionally unable to abide by this decree. He's the Gadol Hador, Rebbe himself. And we find a figure by the name of Papus Ben Yehuda, who finds Rabbi Akiva being Oisik the Torah Barabim. Not only is he learning Torah, he's teaching Torah, he's, uh, he's, he's stimulating, he's inspiring other Jews to learn Torah as well in public. And Papus says to Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva, aren't you afraid? I mean, don't you realize the Romans are, a, are, are, are vengeful people? They're genocidal, how could you do this? And Rabbi Akiva famously <laughs> says, gives a mashal, gives a parable of a fox 
who, the fox like the Romans, um, tries to coax a fish out of the water. And he uses all kinds of foxes being clever uh, and using all kinds of subterfuge, uh, tries to persuade the fish to come onto dry land. And the fish explain patiently um, they, they, that they would, if they were out of their element, they would ultimately die. And of course, the metaphor couldn't be more fitting. Their element is water. Water is nimshal, is likened to Tyra. And we too, out of our element, would die a spiritual and really physical death as well outside of our Tyra, as the Medrash concludes, it's your life and the length of your days. Without Tyra, you're nothing. And that's how he answers Papus ben Yehuda. He says, I can't stop. They'll do what they'll do, but I can't compromise on my convictions. Yes? No, you're really sharp. No, different Papus, different time. That Papus and Lulianus were killed. They were, uh, you know, about a gen... They were before the Bar Kokhba built. What? Uh, he's Papus Ben Yehuda. A diff- different, different figure, it seems. I don't think there's any connection. It could be. And we saw that. We already saw that it would be Alicia Ben Ishmael Ben Alicia, so who knows? I, I don't think so, though. Um, well, Rabbi Kiva's captured eventually, and he's imprisoned. And that day becomes a fast day for Klal Yisrael. And eventually the Romans catch up with other Jews, and eventually they even capture Papus ben Yehuda, and they throw him into jail for other reasons, on some, offe- uh, some, on some kind of minor offense, but the Romans were looking, tax evasion was it? Thank you. It's Gemara Brochus. And when Papus goes to jail and he finds Rebbe Kiva, he looks at Rebbe Kiva and he says, Ashrecha Rebbe Kiva, you are the for- you're the fortunate one, Rebbe Kiva. See, you were caught, your criminal offense was learning Torah. And then he says, he concludes, um, <laughs> Woe to you, Papa, speaking to himself. You were caught over the most ridiculous nonsense. You want to, if they're going to send you away, make sure they send you away for too much excessive Torah learning. Right? That was, that was, his, that was Rabbi Kiva's greatest sin, as it were. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, his devoted student, comes to learn with him in prison. He cannot live without Torah, without his Rebbe, and Rabbi Kiva won't teach him. He said, I've been endangered, I'm not going to endanger you, Rabbi Shimon, you're the future of Klal Yisrael, and Rabbi Shimon won't let up. And he says, you don't realize, my father Yochai, Rabbi Yochai, is a great man with influence, and right now he's working to secure your release, and Rebbe, I'm going to blackmail you. You teach me Torah, and my Rebbe will continue to try to get you released. And if you don't, my father's, I'm calling my father off the job. And Rebbe Akiva answers him, and this is another one of those, I mean, half of Rebbe Akiva's life, I feel like I carry, around, I carry around with me in my pocket. This is one of those things I find myself saying and thinking and uh, endless inspiration. He answers Rebbe Shimon, his student, Bini. My son, more than the calf desires to nurse, para rotzelahanik, the mother cow desires to, to, to give to suckle, to give to give milk, to give milk, and that's of course the metaphor for so many different things. In I mean, just for me autobiographically, in the years I took off from full time teaching to focus more on tour guiding and therapy. 
Um, I love those. I love that work, and I love the feeling of doing the chesed. And if, if 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 I was able making an impact, I was able to make an impact in people's lives. Terrific. But um, I was plotting not being able to teach, and I, I felt that. And I think a lot of people identify with that feeling that more than people want to learn Torah, uh, teachers want to teach Torah. So you don't have it right now. If you feel like learning any of this history, that's great. But in case anybody wanted to go to sleep, I'd still be going at it. You know, just for the record here, the uh, quite literally, you know, for the record, <clears throat> the. Um, Finally, Rabbi Shimon's not satisfied. He said, yeah, Rabbi, you want to you teach more than I want to learn, but I still want to learn. And finally, they reach a compromise, and Rabbi Kiva teaches him five matters. Not exactly clear, and he calls him Dvarim Shel Derech. Oi, Rufo Shlema. Five matters of Derech Eretz. Gemara Psachim tells us this whole story. While in prison, Rabbi Kiva is um, one of the things he anticipates that he's not going to be around much longer. And he does a massive calculation in of future dates of Ibur Shana, when they're going to be leap years. You realize now, with a wandering Sanhedrin and a very uh, tenuous life, precarious life for the Gedolim, this center of gravity of the Jewish people itself is, is, is a mighty unstable center and he's concerned maybe nobody qualified will be around to do Ibr Shana uh, to know when to add an Adar to the year. So he does a complex calculation and he's Ma'abr three years. Again, this is in advance. They, they haven't happened yet, but knowing the calendar backwards and forwards, he's able to calculate three future years while he's still in prison. Um, Right, even though they don't have yet a set calendar, we're going to have that in a few generations under the second Hillel. Uh, but this is a precursor to that. My image from this is my wife, when she was going to the States for family simcha, um, filled the freezer with all kinds of yummies and, and you know, frozen frozen food and things so, so that the kids and the kids and Abba would be taken care of long after she's gone. Right? She's always anticipating the future, so Rebbe Akiva, anticipating that he wouldn't be around much more, is putting, freezing all kinds of baked goods for the, for the, for the, for the Kindelach. We remember of the Asara Haruge Malchus, the ten martyrs, that three had died uh, at the time of the Horban, and having skipped a whole chunk of time now, post Bar Kochva, the Romans realize after they decreed against learning Torah that the fight against Klal Yisrael is really a fight against the rabbis. If you can destroy the, <coughs> the upper echelon uh, of the spiritual life of the Jews, you get the rabbis, uh, maybe you'd have a chance of destroying Klal Yisrael. Uh, the Gemara in Baba Basra tells us that those who die, Al-Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying Kaddish Baruch Hu's name, um, will have a special place in Gan Eden. Nobody will stand in their mechitza. And Rabbi Kiva has been languishing in prison for 12 months, and they finally decree his death. It's Yom Kippur, and they take him to Caesarea, which is by now the capital of Judea. It's an entirely pagan city with tiny Jewish uh, minority there. And in Caesarea, and when you guide Caesarea, who's been to Caesarea? That's a, that's a site you want to visit. It's beautifully maintained today and instructive. Uh, I like to guide there because you can give over a lot of feeling, a lot, lot of content, a lot of hashkafa, a lot of, lot of understanding of Eretz Israel. Yeah. 
Right. Even the modern part has something you can talk about. But I agree with that. That's, I'm talking about. I'm talking about the national national. Uh, well, there's a national park, but also there's uh, there are the ancient aqueducts. Right, well, what yeah, right. But the national park is what is what's most significant. Yeah, no, That's I'm what I'm referring to. The aqueducts are pretty popular in the modern, in the, like the time now. Oh, uh, the golf course. The, uh, uh, yeah, no, no. There's not much in modern Tesari of significance. I, I, I concur. Uh, inland and a little bit north of there is Zifraniaco, and there was there was an interplay between modern Tesari and the buildup of modern Tesari and Zifraniaco. But that the yeah. Also, gorgeous area. In any case, um, we're not sure where this would have happened, but arguably in the Hippodrome or in the area, the um, the uh, possibly one of the theaters there. Um, Rebbe Kiva's taken, as they took so many Jews before, cruelly, they had, uh, they had all kinds of um, races there, that's where the, um, uh, they had barbaric displays of, uh, of, of wrestling with animals, and um, they torture Rebbe Kiva. And of course it's Turnus Rufus, and we said it's not so clear which Turnus Rufus, is it the uh, husband of Rufina or some other Turnus Rufus, he, he chooses a particularly gruesome kind of death for Rabbi Kiva that entails tremendous suffering. They start to flay his skin with iron combs, in the course of which they take uh, chunk by chunk before he's even died of his flesh. They start weighing his flesh on a butcher's scale. This is the horrific death that Adam Rishon and later Moshe Rabbeinu give, get a preview of. Moshe asks, this is, uh, this is his taira, and this is his reward, and according to the Mepharshim, yes, this is his reward. This is the ultimate um, overcoming of the physical world, through the, of the spiritual world overriding the physical world. Dafka with the... With the um, is this Kapara? The, uh, this is Kapara, but it's more than Kapara. It's, a symb it's symbolically demonstrating... The, uh, the superiority of the spiritual over the physical, uh, where the physical is reduced to the lowest possible level and the, and, and the spiritual is elevated at, at, uh, well, in the following way. Each time they comb his skin, he yells, Tzadik Hu Hashem. And it's such a, a, an immense display of Kiddush Hashem that nations gather. There are in the thousands coming to witness the, uh, the murder of Rabbi Akiva, Tzadik Hu Hashem at every time, remember Rabbi Akiva still living by his own words, called the Ovid Rahman al-Latav Ovid. His, his students are gathered there, powerless to stop the, uh, the, the, the torture, and he turns to them and he says, is it time yet for Kriyashma? And they ask him, Rebbeinu Ad Khan, which actually could mean a di few different things, um, and the simplest shot, it seems to be, Rebbe, you're worried about such a thing at a time like this? And he explains to them. He says, you know, all of my life I've been saying Shema. But you know, words are cheap. All of my life I've been saying these words, that I love God with all of my life, with all my soul, with all my might. But it's easy to speak. And it's much harder to put them to the test. And who knew that I would ever have a chance to demonstrate to Kaddish Baruch Hu that I really meant it. I really believed it. Who knew that my day would come? They finally indicate the time for Shema has come, Rebbe. You can say Shema. 
and he, with immense simcha, despite all the pain, or maybe even because of all the pain, because the worse the pain, the greater the tzaddik has, the, the greater opportunity the tzaddik has to demonstrate his pure loyalty to Kaddish Baruch Hu, he says in a clear, pure voice, he says, he recites the Shema, and at Echad, he holds out the Dalit with extra kavana, and exactly at that moment, his neshama departs from his body. Abbas Kol comes out and declares for everybody to hear, Ashrecha Rabbi Akiva, Fortunate are you to die the ideal death that your neshama should leave your body at the word Echad. Just when you're sanctifying the Kaddish Baruch Hu's name, literally in the best way imaginable. And the pain itself testified to Rabbi Kiva's accomplishing starting out life as a humble shepherd and overcoming. And anybody listening yesterday to Rabbi Tsaidi uh, mentioning our discussion and Rabbi Yis- and, and Rabbi Shal Salanter's Torah that we quoted before, that it was Rabbi Ki- it was uh, Rabbi Kiva actually had learned earlier in his life, but he didn't get it. He didn't stay with it. He didn't notice that he was on a downward path until he turned things around and then he took an upward path. He didn't do Chazara. And then finally at 40, finally at 40, he started doing Chazara. I was trying to get, I was looking around the room last night and I was trying to make eye contact with those of you who were there. I couldn't, couldn't get eye contact with you, but you, it was a good sign that you were enthralled <laughs> by the story. Um, and, uh, and, and we saw that starting, starting from humble roots as the shepherd, of somebody whose life is utterly in the physical world, how he's success, how he succeeds in his lifetime. His lifetime itself is testimony that you can indeed uh, in, infuse the physical with spiritual. The day that Rabbi Akiva dies, the Medrash in Breshis Rabbah tells us, um, Rebbe, the son of Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, was born which um, on the one hand the rational historians in us say that doesn't make sense because if you remember it's been a couple it was at least about uh, well we don't know exactly when this was let's say we guess it's around 140 maybe 145 in the common era but sometime several several years earlier uh, you remember that his father Rebbe Shimon Magamliel had already been making Rebbe's bris and even then we say that Rebbe must have been born earlier but the Medrash is trying to convey to us, and it says it in so many words, it quotes the Pasuk in Kohelis, V'zarach HaShemesh Uva HaShemesh. When the sun, the sun rises and the sun sets, um, HaKadosh Baruch Hu never leaves the world bereft. When one Sadiq leaves our midst, another Sadiq is provided, um, maybe at this point, maybe what the Medrash is indicating that Rebbe was emerging as a uh, student of Tyra. Um, but what's clear, the message is, is that um, we're never alone. And I'm going to, from this point on in history, going to point out several instances that around the same time that one, ma- that one major sadiq dies, leaves the Jewish world, another one comes around. For example, the Gemara tells us when Rebbe dies, Rav Yehuda in Bavel was born. Um, we're going to see when Rebbeinu Gershom, um, the Moor Hagola, uh, famous from his Takanos, including the Takana that men take only one wife, when he dies, Rashi's born. And like that. And, and they said Rivka and, and Sarah. Oh, right. When Sarah died, Sarifka was born. Interesting. Good connection. I'm not going to go through <laughs> all of the remaining seven of the um, Sarah Harugi Malchus, but, I, but 
most of them die at this time in history, and I'm going to mention a couple of them. Um, Rabbi Hananiah ben Tradion is uh, one of the one of the great Tanaim. He has we know that he has at least two daughters and a son. Um, the son we learned about in the Medrash Necharabah became a bandit, became one of the listim, uh, and was later killed. One of his daughters we're going to hear a lot about. Her name, anybody know? Bruria. Her name was Bruria, and she was famous in her own right and famous as well for her husband, Rabbi Meir. The other daughter um, was taken with, with Rabbi Hananiah ben Tradion and his wife. They arrest, they arrest him when they find him learning Torah, and they decree for him the death sentence of Srefa. He's going to be burned, <coughs> wrapped in that Torah that he was learning. They decree that his wife will be decapitated, killed by Saif. And they decree that the daughter will be sent to what's called a Kuba Shelzonos, a uh, brothel. She'll have a life of prostitution. The three of them accept their fate. They say, Tzidu Kadin, like we recite when we hear the news of a close one who died. The castaner, the Roman executioner, wraps Rabbi, Rabbi Kananya in a Sefer Torah. He wraps him with cotton too. The point of the cotton, the Mepharshim explained to us, is to prolong his death, make it more torturous. <coughs> it was wet cotton, that makes even more sense. Um, but he's so impressed, Rabbi, Rabbi Kananya has complete acceptance of every step of the way. He doesn't resist in the least. He's, and the executioner finally says, you know, I, I'm in charge here. I, I'm telling you, you can go free. And Rabbi Hanani says it's already been decreed by Kadosh Baruch Hu. If you don't wind up, and it's been decreed by the Romans as well, if you don't kill me, somebody else will kill me. I'm designated to die al-Kadosh Hashem. Um, when the burning begins, the daughter screams. But the Mepharshim point out, she's not screaming at her father's torture, much like Rabbi Elish, the, the first Rabbi Ishmael ben Elisha didn't scream when his skin was stripped from his flesh. He only screamed when it hit the point of tefillin. So too, she only screams when the Sefer Tyra starts to burn that's surrounding her. And we know that's true because um, his words, to calm her, he says, don't worry, the letters of the Torah will survive this. He just says, Porchos ba'avir, they'll fly into the air. You never have to worry about Torah being destroyed. Our worst enemies, <laughs> even Ace of Russia, even the Roman Empire, can't destroy this. <coughs> um, the Kastaner turns to Rabbi Hanania, and he's so emotionally, so taken with this big tzaddik, he said, can, if I remove the cotton to hasten your death, can I have a portion in Olam Haba? And Rabbi Hanania says, yes. And um, he removes the cotton jumps in the flames himself because he knows by helping Rabbi, Hana, Rabbi Hananya, he himself will be designated for death by the Romans. Um, as the two of them are consumed in the flames, indeed, by miracle, the letters fly up to the heavens. And Abbasco comes and declares that both Rabbi Hananya ben Tradion and his executioner will receive Olam Haba. It's about the death of the Kastner that Rabbi Yehuda Nasi teaches later some people 
um, acquire their destiny in one moment, in one instance. You do the right thing. I just said this at lunchtime and I forgot I was about to say it over in history. I was um, speaking to somebody who's about to make a fateful decision in his life uh, and sometimes you don't know what the key moments in life are and you have to be present for them. Sometimes they get you when you're not looking. So in this case, he, he uh, rose, rose to the occasion. One more brief story. Rabbi Yehuda ben Bava was 70 years old. He's described, he's one of the Asaruge Malchus. He's described since he was 18 that he had never tasted sleep except for Shena uh, Sasus, temporary little bits of sleep that he, that he grabbed. But otherwise, he learned Torah his whole life. Anytime in the Gemara where it says Maise Bechosid, it's understood that it's a reference to Rabbi Yehuda ben Bava or Rabbi Yehuda bar Eli. One of the two. We're going to hear a lot about Rabbi Yehuda bar Eli, among other reasons. What's his, what's his uh, big, big uh, statistic about Rabbi Yehuda bar Eli? Most mentioned Tana. You got it. Okay, so this is Rabbi Yehuda ben Bava, not the same. Um, Hadrian now decrees against. I do. Yeah, it's it's right outside of Tzfas. Um, it's one of the one of the graves that the Arizal identified. So that's pretty authoritative. Hadrian now tries to stop the Sanhedrin. He prohibits the practice of smicha. No more connecting Ish back to Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, the Masorish charts that you've, we've been we've been tied to that are periodically. Uh, um, breaks out so we can look at it, he wants to do away with that. He wants to get rid of the whole transmission. They want to go after the rabbis. And he does something really, really cruel. He declares a death sentence on the mus, on the somchim, on those who give smicha, on the mismachim, on those who receive smicha, on the city where it takes place, everybody's going to die so that he motivates the people themselves to, uh, over, you know, to, to, to rise up against it. And in addition, he decrees that any city that has smicha, uh, that has a smicha ceremony, the Romans are charged with burning all the crops within a mile, within a parsa, uh, about a Persian mile radius all around. A horrific decree that should be effective, except for the likes of Rabbi ben Bava, who the Gemara then tells us takes students to a place, and I actually like to go here, between Usha and Shvaram, uh, all students of Rabbi Akiva actually, who are also his students, and he takes them to these two large mountains, of course far from any settlement, that way they won't be able to burn crops or kill any other people, and he takes, who are these students, or perhaps you've heard of them, they include Rabbi Mer Balanes, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli, Rabbi Yossi ben Chalafta and Rabbi Elazar ben Shemua, and he gives them smicha. When he does this, he saves smicha. He saves dine knasos because without having smicha, you can't get, you can't you can't uh, judge cases of knas. The Romans spot them, chase them. He blocks the passageway, <laughs> and he sends his students fleeing. He blocks with his body, and thereby. Yes, thereby um, prevents the Romans from running and reaching the students. And he tells the Musmachim, run. You're the future of Klal Yisrael, as indeed they will be. They're concerned about his well-being. He says, uh, I'm a rock. You don't have to worry about me. 
And like you remember, his body is speared 300 times like a sieve reminiscent of the death of Yoshiawa Melech. Yoshiawa Melech. Wait, when does Smitha get lost? Soon, but not yet. They're, they're, they're going to sustain it for another few generations. Um, Rav Chutzpis Hamaturgaman, Hamaturgaman back in the day, gave the Chazara Shir, after the Gadol Hador said over the Torah Shir, so he explained what it meant to everybody. He was compared with Yonasan ben Uziel, uh, and at the ripe old age of 130 years old, um, he was the Maturgaman of Rabbi Gamliel de Yavna, many generations back. Um, no, not many, a couple generations back. He is taken out by the Romans. He's stoned, then hanged, and to top it off, they rip his tongue out of his mouth, and it's thrown in a garbage heap. And somebody's watching. Who watched when Chutzpi Samaturgaman's tongue was thrown into the garbage heap and then, or alternately dragged by swine? His name is Elisha ben Aboya. And he couldn't imagine how this could happen. How could there be justice in the universe when a tongue that uttered those pearls of wisdom, so much immense Torah to be recited by that tongue, should reach such, such a low fate? And he asks the wrong question. Chutzmis um, is one of the Asarahoge Malchus. The rest of the list is debated, but probably the, the others include Rabbi Yehuda ben Tema, Rabbi Hanina ben Chachinai, Rabbi Yeshabev, and Rabbi Lazar ben Shemua, who's one of the five who just got smicha, are generally counted as the Asara Haruge Malchus. Um, tomorrow we're going to be we're going to be moving on and talking about the next generation of Tanoim. Um, yeah, we do. I'm despairing it. I'm sparing it. I'm trying to disappoint Arya. I wouldn't want him to get too much uh, in, into these things. No, well, you can read about it. I'll tell you where good, a good count. Art School does a nice, nice job of summarizing it, both in the Machsor for Yom Kippur or in the in the Machsor for Tisha B'Av. You can read it. You can read in more detail. Okay, Shkoyach, everybody. Rabbi, there was uh, yeah. something interesting. Um, they said, uh, you mentioned the Rashi uh, at the very end. Yes. The whole yes, of course. We're going to tell it here. Right, right. But there was, uh, that's based on the Rashi. Rashi is the one who brings down that story. Yes. And he's the only source, actually. We're not there yet. We'll talk, no, we're no, going to no, talk no, about no, it all here. No, but, uh, Rashi's the only source for that. But hold on. I'm going to conclude the tape now. Oh, Unless you think it's relevant. No, okay. Tomorrow we'll continue.